So how much does it cost to be an Olympic figure skater? I mean, I imagine a good pair of skates sets you back a couple of dollars. I'm thinking all the, the time at the local ice rink is probably not cheap. And man, I, I'm scared to think about how much all them rhinestones cost. I mean, that's some serious cash right there. About uh, eight years ago, Forbes magazine did an article where they estimated uh, the cost and the cost they estimated was it's about $100,000 that parents will spend to prepare and train their child for the potential of being an Olympic figure skater. And then we know that of all of that investment, there's only a handful of people that ever actually make it to the big ice show. It's a, it's a big investment, a big cost. And what about the Olympic venues? What about these, these locations, you know? It's not just the money that you would spend on trying to train somebody to be an ice skater, but, but what about all the other sports? What about the, the snowboarding and the skiing and, and all the other things? Those things take money too, especially when you have to build the facilities to house them. The 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi cost Russia an estimated $50 million. That is a lot of coin. And it's been reported that over the last four years that those facilities, the, the athletic facilities, the hotels, the housing, that whole village has been left almost abandoned, barely used. Not much going on. The mayor of Boston pulled his city out of the running to host the 2022 games because, he said, when it comes to hosting the Olympics, he says, you are mortgaging the future of the city away. Last week, August Rick, in another article in Forbes magazine, notes this, taxpayers quietly cover over-expenditures for decades after the games have left. He goes on, after hosting the 1968 Winter Olympics, taxpayers in Grenoble, France, were still paying the bill into the early 1990s. The 1976 Montreal Games were finally paid off in 2006, 30 years later. So the snowboarding and, and the rhinestone figure skating and the luge, they, they might all provide the, the thrill of victory, but it seems that the price tag brings the agony of defeat, at least for the host city, right? You may not be planning on hosting an Olympic event at your house sometime in the near future, but, but we all know how to count the cost, right? We, we know what that means. You're at a you know, charity bake sale and, and you got $3 in your pocket, and fresh homemade cinnamon rolls are $3. But then the chocolate-covered pecan with sea salt caramel drizzle cinnamon rolls, those are $3.50. I mean, we know how to count the cost, right? I mean, we, we know the $3 and the $3.50. We understand, you know, what we have to do. We have to go find somebody to give us 50 cents, right? <laughs> that's, that's the first thing you would do. We, we know what it means to count the cost. But what if we're not talking about cinnamon rolls? What if we're not talking about Olympic venues? What if we're talking about the kind of counting of a cost that's actually connected to your very soul? The, the cost that you're counting that's connected to your very last breath on earth. That's a different kind of counting, right? That, that's a cost that has a completely different kind of victory or a cost that has a completely different kind of defeat. So have you, count, have you in your life 
sat down to count the cost of what's connected to your soul. And how would you know if you've done that? Well, let's see if we can try to help ourselves answer that question. Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 28, Jesus is speaking to a crowd and he says this, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? This week, the Reverend Billy Graham, his faith became sight. And I have heard more than one person in different settings this week say something along these lines. You know, his message was simple, it was clear, and his message never changed. And you know, he got that from our master teacher. Jesus spoke to people in such a way that was simple, it was clear, anyone from anywhere, any background could understand what Jesus was talking about. His message was simple, it was clear, and his message never changed. And that message sounded like this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that message never changed. Over and over, he would speak that truth. And on this one particular day, he's expanding on that message. He's speaking to a crowd about what repentance looks like in in real life. And he uses simple language. He says, look, if you're going to build something, one of the first things you're going to do is you're going to figure out what kind of materials you need and, and how much it might cost you. And why are you going to do that? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. Verse 29. Otherwise... When he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Listen, if you're going to build a decorative gazebo in your front yard, you know, what you're going to do is you're going to figure out what materials you need and you're going to figure out how much it costs. You're not just going to go to the lumber yard and tell the guy, hey, throw some two by fours in there and give me some lattice, you know. And why? Why are you going to go to the extra mile to try to count the cost? Because if you don't, And then you get out there in the front yard and you start building the gazebo and then you run out of materials and then you run out of money. What you're going to end up with is this weird looking bench and this thing that looks like a really bad nativity scene made out of lattice. And it's just going to be this eyesore in your front yard and your neighbors are going to mock you. They're going to ridicule you. Sometimes you're to your face and sometimes behind your back. But at the very least, you will not be invited to the neighborhood Christmas party. You're out. You're done. Or maybe you've seen a sign around town that that says something like this, future home of little Bacon Mountain Baptist Church. Just just a church sign out there, and and you you ride by that church sign. It's the future location of this church, and you've been riding by that church sign since 1979, right? That sign has been there forever. It's it's just there on that piece of land, and, and nothing's happened. Or maybe worse, something's happened. There's a foundation, but the foundation has been there for like decades, I can remember a couple of churches that I rode by like that that, that had wires and, and PVC pipe and all this stuff sticking up out of the foundation, but never anything, just, just for more than a decade, just sitting there. I, I don't know whatever became of either one of those. Sure, there's le- legitimate reasons that, that sometimes deter plans, but, but often, and this has even been my experience in, in my ministry life, often a church is tempted to have a pipe dream. And to get all excited about building something before they build a ministry. And so a sign goes up and it sits out there forever and ever and ever and nothing ever happens. And here's what does happen though. Christians and non-Christians, they ride by and they see that sign over and over again. And and they wonder, huh, I wonder what happened to that church, you know. I wonder if they're ever going to build out there. Maybe 
Maybe they came up with another plan, or, or maybe, maybe the church just isn't doing anything. Maybe the church has already closed its doors before it had doors. And there's a, a sense of embarrassment and shame and, and mocking and ridicule, not when something's up for a year or two, but when something's up forever and ever and ever. Well, well what's going to happen? What, what was the vision behind this? Jesus is not talking about embarrassment over a church sign, though. The word for ridicule here, it means bitter contempt. If you went and did a little internet search on uh, abandoned Olympic venues, what you'd find is some links, and they would take you to these links, and, and there would be pictures of these grand athletic facilities that today are, are now overrun with trees or vines or there's, there's graffiti all over them or some of them are just falling apart. And some of them, the taxpayers are still paying for those facilities, even though they're not being used and they're run down or they're spray painted all over. I mean, do you think people ride by those facilities on the way to work and go, whew, man, I love that. Man, I'm glad my tax dollars are going to that. You know, or do they ride by and go, oh, I can't believe this. That's, that's just embarrassing. That's, that's pathetic. In, in Russia, it's said that the, the village for the Sochi Olympics, that many people call it the Museum of Corruption. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. I'm thinking that's a ridicule, you know. They're not riding by going, boy, I remember when the Olympics were here four years ago. They're like, man, that's, that's just a museum of corruption. And Jesus is going to bring all of this home pretty strongly in just a minute. But, but let's go ahead and see if we can make a few connections. If you profess to be a Christian, and yet there is rarely any sign of the attitudes and the teachings and the truths of Jesus in your life, if those things cannot be seen, then people are not just going to be mocking your Christianity. They're actually going to be mocking Jesus. See, this isn't just persecution for people who hate Christianity. This is people who would mock Jesus because they hear and see of your faith, and yet they see this very phony, convenient hobby in your life, not truly a following after this, this man who claims to be the Son of God, this one who claims to be I am. And if people can see that your commitment is weak or, or my commitment is weak and, and just convenient, then, then what, is, what is God going to do when he looks down on us? Is God going to go, oh, you know... I, you're weak, and, and this thing's a hobby. I understand, but you know what? You prayed the sinner's prayer, you got baptized, so I'm good with everything. I mean, we're not talking about struggling in our faith. Most of us have moments of darkness and doubt. We, we struggle. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about seasons where we struggle. We're, we're talking about a country club Christianity. We're talking about the idea that you're defining your salvation by the fact that you're just a member of the church or, or that you attend church or that you used to be involved in a church and used to be active or that you help build a church. See, when God takes role, he's not going to use the church directory. He has a different way of, of estimating those who are following after his son. And so Jesus, he's, he's speaking very clearly with a message about counting the cost, and he uses a tower. Everybody would have understood that story. And then he uses another picture of counting the cost. Listen to verse 31. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Again, common sense, simple, right? You've got a king who's got 10,000 troops. 
And then you have another king that's got 20,000 troops, and the king with 10,000 is going, I don't, I don't know if my battle plan is going to work. I need to, I need to look at this. I need to think through this. Simple language. Now, granted, somebody might want to pull a little Captain Solo and never tell me the odds and just, you know, jump in there with everything that they have. Or we might think of a military battle in the Bible or, or another part of history, and, and we might see where in that battle there was this great risk that was taken. This, they, they overcame these great odds, and, and victory was won. But remember, Jesus is talking to a group of people about what it means to follow after him. He wants them to understand what it means to be a Christian. And so he's using kind of some parables, so to speak. Remember, a parable is a a real-life truth set down by a a real-life situation so that real-life people can see how to do life for real. So so Jesus has these stories of the tower and, and now of the king. And the king in real life, a military leader in real life, is going to count the cost of waging war. They're going to. Yes, they may decide to forge ahead and risk it all, but they're going to count the cost. And if a king is sitting there realizing that he's got 10,000 troops against 20,000 troops, more than likely, generally speaking, he's going to do exactly what Jesus says next. Listen to verse 32. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Yes, he might decide that his army has home field advantage. Or he might decide that his army has better weapons and better training, and he might just forge ahead and just risk it all at any cost to win the battle. But, more than likely, in this scenario, a faithful military leader is going to send somebody out and try to set some peace terms, or maybe try to delay the battle so he can get more troops, or, or maybe come up with another battle plan. So in this setting with what Jesus is talking about, here's why the courageous win at all costs for the kingdom won't work. Here's why overcoming the odds in a great battle, it doesn't work in this scenario. And why? Well, I'm going to let Apostle Paul preach to us for a little bit here through several of his different letters. We're going to start in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes, When you were dead in your transgressions, Now, in light of all the popular zombie TV series and zombie movies, I know this might be hard for you to understand, but but here's the truth of it. Dead people don't fight, okay? And dead people don't risk anything, and dead people can't overcome odds. You see, the curse of sin is not something that you can risk and win over. The curse of sin is is not an odd that you can just overcome on your own. The curse of sin separates you from God. The curse of sin makes you spiritually dead. And not just spiritually dead and not just separated from God, but when you're spiritually dead and when you're separated from God, you have a debt. (laughs) Bummer, right? You have a debt in the middle of your spiritual deadness, in the middle of your separation from God. And not just any kind of debt either. Colossians 2.14, Paul continues, The certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us. There's a certificate of debt. Everybody has one. Everybody in this room, everybody who can hear my voice, everybody in your neighborhood, everybody at work, everybody halfway around the world, everybody who's ever lived, everybody who will ever live, everybody has a certificate of debt. And that certificate of debt, it's, it's, it's not something that anyone's exempt from. 
When Paul was writing to the Romans, he put it this way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All is kind of a clear word. Everybody, all have sinned. So we have this certificate of of debt, this, this debt to sin. And what is that all about? Paul told the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Curse is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. All right, quick show of hands. How many people perfectly, without any mixture of error, obeyed every single one of God's laws this week? <laughs> yeah. We're getting the picture here. See, without Christ... We are dead in our sin. We're we're deeper than deep in debt to sin. Without Christ, we are lost and without God. We're lost and without hope in this world. We're lost and without hope in the world to come. This is the picture of the gospel. It's the bad news in the midst of the good news. Because the gospel tells us if we will repent and turn to Christ, that certificate of debt will be canceled. The language is like a a huge dry erase board, and all of our sin is on that dry erase board, and Jesus, through his death, wipes away all of that sin. He pays the penalty for all of that sin. The debt of our sin is canceled, and we get to live off the grace of God for all of eternity. But it isn't just canceled. Paul told the Colossians again in verse 14, And he has taken it out of the way, having. Of all the amazing things that we see in the cross of Jesus Christ that we'll celebrate here in just a few weeks very strategically. Of all the amazing things about the cross is this, that Jesus paid the price of our sins and our sins cannot be held against us ever again. That's amazing. That's That's mind-boggling. Because here's the thing. See, you can't risk to earn salvation. You can't fight to earn salvation. You can't overcome an odd to earn salvation. Only Jesus can bear the penalty of your sin. Only Jesus can earn salvation. Only Jesus. Nobody else. And what does that salvation bring? That salvation brings exactly what that king knew he needed to pursue. Peace. Colossians 1 verse 20. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Peace. This is the only way your soul will ever know peace in Jesus. There's no other way. See what Jesus is doing and giving these kind of two parables is he's really trying to help people see they need to count two different costs. They need to count the cost of following him and not following him. You need to count the cost of following after Jesus, but you also really need to count the cost of rejecting Jesus and not following after him. That's that's what Jesus is moving us toward. He's, He's taking us deeper into this. And here's the reality. If you reject Jesus, if you refuse to follow him, you will never know peace. Never. You'll never know peace. That's a cost, right? That, that, that's something to count. That's not something to ignore. See, Jesus can't be your Sunday hobby. 
Jesus can't be your Wednesday night pick-me-up. Jesus can't be your summer mission project. Jesus can't be your charitable gift. The picture of everything that Jesus gives and everything that Paul is telling us as a church is this, this debt is real. The curse is real. But the salvation of Jesus is, is real and it's supreme over all. Paul told the Ephesians this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. I think we know this. It's it's probably good for us just to hear it. This week and coming up this week, all of us, we will try to find some peace in our spouses. And we'll try to find some peace in our kids. And we'll try to find some peace in our jobs and our homes and our hobbies and our friends and our families, our retirement plan, whatever it may be. We will try to find peace in this world. And we'll find it. We'll find it for 30 minutes or a couple hours, a couple of days. But then, then it will be gone because there is no peace that is lasting except for the peace that comes from Jesus. There's there's no peace except what comes from him. Jesus is our peace. He is the only one where we will find peace. And all of that peace that comes through Jesus for our souls, not just in this life, but in the life to come, all of that peace, it gets to us through the strangest way. It gets to us through crucifixion. It gets to us through through execution. Listen to how God perfectly described this to Isaiah hundreds of years before it happened. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. That's weird math. It's glorious math, but it's she doesn't sound right. Verse 6, here's why. All of us, like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Our sin falling on Jesus. And down in verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. That's weird language, right? What's your love language? Oh, I, I crush. That's what I do. I'm a, I'm a crusher. That's, I crush people. That's how I love. That's how I show them my love. That's, this is strange language. What does this mean? Why would God take pleasure in, in crushing his son? Well, let's switch from Paul to John just for a second. John's going to help us. First John chapter 3, verse 1. See? Did you see this? See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. How great is the love of God? So great that he would crush his son. And why would he crush his son? So that we might not be separated. So that we might be saved, so that we might be reconciled and made right with God, so that we would go from haters of God to lovers of God, so that we would go from being in the kingdom of darkness and being transferred into the kingdom of light. This this is amazing. 
really, God was pleased to crush his son so that we would be brought near to God. Near to, to the one true God of the universe. You know, if Jesus had, had not died, if Jesus had not endured the cross of the shame, then we would not have, none of us would have any ability to be reconciled to God. Not at all. But here's the thing. With every twitch in the womb, with every cry in the manger, with every meal that he ate, with every word that he taught, with every touch of his hand, with every tear in his eye, with every step of the donkey, with every palm branch that swayed, with every hosanna that was shouted, with every prayer in the garden, with every slap in the face, with every lash of the whip, with every thorn in his brow, with every pound of the nails, with every last breath, Jesus kept his eyes forward. He never changed. He never shifted. You know why? He counted the cost. Before the foundations of the world, Jesus looked at the cost of the cross and for the glory of God and because of his love for me and you, he said, yeah, the cross, it's all worth it. It'll be all worth it to glorify my Father and to redeem and save those who are lost without him. You see, we can't we can't afford salvation. We can't. You, you can't put the materials together to go fight and earn your salvation. It won't happen. But Jesus, Jesus has paid it all. All of it. And because he's paid it all, that's why he started talking like this before he went to the cross. He was pulling people into his message. He was being simple. He was being clear. And his message was never changing. But he was not pulling punches with his message at all. So he said things like this, verse 33. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. <laughs> well, there you go. You see, if... If going to church and following Jesus is a phase for you, or, or even a tradition for you, or, or a, a sentimental thing for you, then your gazebo is going to sit in the front yard unfinished. You're going to run out of materials. You're going to run out of money. And, and your neighbors are going to mock this thing that you say is, is your Christianity. And what's worse, Jesus is saying that if, if that's what happens to you, if it's, if it's just a phase, you can't be a Christian. That's how Jesus talks. And Jesus says, if, if you're just going to have a, a cross to, be, to bear, you know, like for Easter and Christmas and a few other Sundays, you know, if you're going to risk and you're going to fight for, for that cross just yeah, for a few Sundays a year or, or maybe when something tough is happening in life, Jesus says you cannot be a Christian. He says that's, that's the opposite of what it means to follow him. And then he takes it to this step. He says, and if, if you don't, Give up all of your possessions, then you can't be a Christian. <laughs> and, I mean, does that mean that, you know, when you leave here today, you know, to go give away everything that you have? I, I don't know, maybe. I don't know, maybe. But, but, but maybe not. So what's Jesus saying? Well, notice he says give up, not give away. That's, that's different language, okay? You're not co-signing with Jesus, you're signing over. 
This isn't a, a sign and drive. This is a sign and ride. You're, you're long. You're giving all. Pastor Mike Andrew says it this way. Jesus does not ask for much, only all that you have. Your possessions, your time, your talents, your career, your desires, your ideals, your plans. He may not take them from you, but he does demand that you surrender title to them. And he goes on. He does not ask that you give them away, but rather that you give them up. Obviously, the demands of discipleship are great, and the cost is significant. It's true. I mean, all of the language that Jesus uses throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, these things, these truths that he teaches, they all point to to these demands. And yes, Jesus demands a lot. He does. And yes, the cost to follow him is significant. It is. But the benefit, the benefit far outweighs the cost. The benefit far outweighs the demand. What's the benefit? The benefit is love. Eternal, infinite, satisfying love. Glenn Scrivener puts it this way. When I ask myself, does God love me? I can look to the cross alone. There is his demonstration of love for rebels at war with him. He hasn't fixed his love on me at my best. He has fixed his love on me at my worst. Feel that. I speak on behalf of all of us. We're not convinced we have a worst. We're not. We're convinced we're pretty good people. We worked our job. We got our paycheck. We put the kids through college. We helped them pay their car insurance. We babysit the grandkids. We buy the groceries. We're the yard of the month every now and then. We're we're convinced we're probably okay. We're not. Not according to Jesus. We're we're at our worst without him. But with him, with him, we, we have everything. With him, we have unconditional, infinite, satisfying love. There's nothing better than that. Scrivener goes on. His love isn't a bonus for the godly. It's aimed at his enemies. If I'm looking at the sun lifted up on the cross, then I'm seeing infallible proof. Okay, you may be here this morning and you're wondering, is there a God? You may be thinking, I don't know if God exists. Maybe you're having doubt. So we want to graciously and mercifully point your attention to the cross. Because when you see the cross, a real historical moment, a resurrection that has been verified by More than a thousand people. This is not a fairy tale. It's not a legend. And so the cross says this to you. Scribner says, when I look at the cross, then I'm seeing infallible proof of God's immovable, inexhaustible, unfathomable affection for me. For me. When you see a decorative cross in a church or on a highway, it's not just decorative. It's a message of the proof of God's immovable, inexhaustible, unfathomable affection for you. 
Love that image. Enjoy that image. Own that image. Sign away your life for that love. Count that cost because it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. Listen again to what John says. See, see what an incredible quality of love the Father has given and shown and bestowed on us that we should be permitted to be named and called and counted the children of Jehovah, Yahweh, Almighty God. And yet in Christ, so we are. So we are.